You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. As it is, we're not sure month to month if this is going to keep going. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics we don't have time to cover in our longer episodes, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. As a member, you could get a new episode from us as often as once a week. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. We know times are tough for everyone, and we appreciate your support. Desire isn't tied to the binary, and Aphrodite is the goddess of desire. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Aphrodite was the goddess of desire the walking embodiment of sex and sexual pleasure, and despite inspiring desire of all kinds in those around her, she's usually depicted as a cisgender woman, probably because the lens she's come down through has been very much influenced by straight cis male desire and the patriarchy. But that has not always been the case. In the oldest forms of Aphrodite's worship on Cyprus, the legendary island of her birth, ancient writers tell us of mystery cults, that depicted Aphrodite as perhaps gender non-binary, intersex, or even as a transgender woman, with an even more ancient tradition of worship by priestesses who we might recognize today as transgender. I came across this in my research for the Cult of Aphrodite episode. Bettany Hughes mentions a transgender Aphrodite in her book Venus and Aphrodite, a biography of desire. And I just had to know more. Je- I was texting Jen in the middle of the night. I was so excited. I was just like, is, is Aphrodite trans? Has she been trans this whole time? I have to tell everybody about it. And I was like, Jenny Williamson, it is 3 a.m. And as excited as I am by this fact, it is 3 a.m. And this is basically how most of our conversations go. Like we swap off. To be fair, the amount of times I have texted Jenny at like 3 a.m. being like, let me tell you this story about Dionysus when it's 3 a.m. her time or 4 a.m. And she's like, could you not, though, at this particular time, just email it to me. I was so excited. I had to tell Jen. I have to tell you. I want to tell everybody about trans Aphrodite because this is canon, you guys. I just had to know more about what Benny Hughes was talking about in her book. And as I got deeper into the research, I found that beneath Aphrodite's traditional depiction as cisgender, which we're all used to, was a far older version of a goddess who defied a cisgender identity. 
I've seen it said that in ancient Greece and Rome, two extremely patriarchal cultures that leaned hard on traditional gender roles to maintain societal control in a quote-unquote democracy, there were no accepted roles for people who didn't conform to traditional gender identities. But that's not really true. I mean, I used to kind of believe that, but it, it is not actually true. We know that there isn't a word for transgender in the cultures we're looking at and that gender identities don't line up exactly. Um, some of the people and mythological characters we're going to be talking about in this episode could be said to be intersex, they could be said to be non-binary, they could be said to be trans, and we know that these are not all the same, but sometimes the ancient cultures didn't differentiate that well um, between them. So things can get blurry. Just because there's no word for transgender, though, doesn't mean that people didn't exist back then whose experience of their gender would be very familiar to trans people today. And a lot of the time, we see these people in the context of religious cults. So it's our thesis that transgender women were instrumental in worshipping the ancestor goddess of Aphrodite, and that Aphrodite herself was strongly associated in some cult centers with a transgender identity. There is historical and mythological evidence to back up a claim that Aphrodite was in fact a trans woman, which is just awesome. So let's talk about that evidence for a transgender Aphrodite. I'm going to start with a very old and not very well-known story about Aphrodite that I stumbled across in my research. In his histories, Herodotus tells the story of a group of Scythians who once set out to make war against Egypt. The pharaoh got wind of this. He sent a delegation out to meet them, persuading them with gifts and prayers not to make war. So the Scythians turned back. Some of them were persuaded, and they made their way through the city of Ascalon in Syria. Most of them passed through without incident, but a handful of troublemakers hung back to attack and plunder the temple of Aphrodite there. This temple to Aphrodite was the most ancient in existence, according to Herodotus. It was older than the temples in Cyprus and Kithara, from which her worship in Greece originated. This was a temple to Aphrodite that predated her worship in Greece. And according to Herodotus, Aphrodite visited a special punishment on the Scythians, who raided that temple. She struck them and all their descendants with what Herodotus calls, quote, the female sickness. And what that may mean is that she turned them intersex. Now, this is an old story and not very well known. And it's not about being transgender, as intersex and transgender are not the same thing. What it shows, however, and why Jenny wanted to include it, is that in her oldest incarnations, Aphrodite had the power to change people's gender. Or change, you know, both sex and gender. Exactly. Thank you. And that makes a lot of sense because desire isn't tied to the binary. And Aphrodite is the goddess of desire. Transgender Aphrodite goes back to the very beginning of Aphrodite herself. We can find evidence for this even in Aphrodite's origin story. You know, we've talked about it in several different episodes and maybe a couple of our Patreon episodes at different levels. It's when Kronos sliced off Uranus's bits and threw them into the sea, and Aphrodite arose from the foam that frothed up in the ocean around Uranus's detached bits. I was uh, perusing the website of The Queer Classicist, which you can find at queerclassicist.com. She's also at queerclassicist on Twitter. She's awesome. I really love everything she's written. It's so, so fascinating. She really explores queerness and um, being gender nonconforming in the ancient world. And she has a quote that I felt like I really just wanted to share with you guys. This is a quote from an article on her website. Quote, 
Aphrodite is solely constructed from what the ancient Greeks perceived to be the defining male feature, and yet she's a woman. The most beautiful goddess, who was born as a fully formed woman, was at the same time considered to be biologically just 100% Uranus dick. <laughs> I mean, that's true. <laughs> it's absolutely true. I mean, you can't really get around that. So Aphrodite's origin story is a clue about her ancient transgender nature, and it existed at the beginning. This is one of the oldest myths told about Aphrodite, appearing in Hesiod's Theogony around the 700s BC. But the roots of Aphrodite's trans identity are even older than this. The goddess Aphrodite has her roots in the ancient Near Eastern goddess of love, known at different times as Astarte, Ishtar, and Inanna. She was worshipped in places including ancient Babylon, Assyria, and Sumeria, going back thousands of years. Inanna, the ancient Sumerian goddess, is perhaps the oldest of all, and the original Aphrodite ancestor. Her worship goes back as far as 4000 BC. Like Aphrodite, she was the goddess of love, sex, and beauty. She was also the goddess of war. And this carries through in the mythology and worship of Aphrodite as well. Some ancient cult centers, even in ancient Greece, worshipped Aphrodite as a goddess of war, especially in Sparta. And Aphrodite's link to Ares is believed to be a carryover of her former association with war in the Near East. We go over that in more detail in our episode on the cult of Aphrodite. Like the Aphrodite in Herodotus's tale, Inanna was said to have the power to change a person's gender, and her priestesses were people we might recognize today as transgender women. Here's how we know about this. The first poet whose name was recorded was a woman, probably a cisgender woman. Her name was Enhedwana, and she was Akkadian. She lived from 2285 to 2250 BC, really long time ago. She was the daughter of Sargon of Akkad, the first ruler of the Akkadian Empire, the first emperor that is known to ever have existed, according to some historians. Sargon was more powerful than anyone else in his world who came before him. He doted on his daughter and Haduana. He appointed her high priestess of the Temple of Inanna in the city of Ur. Sargon had just conquered the Sumerians and he wanted his daughter to combine ancient Sumerian gods with the existing Akkadian gods to create a new combined pantheon that would make his empire more stable. I mean, this is a trick that the Romans and the Greeks also pulled later on. Yeah, this is a trick that colonizers have been pulling throughout history. So, Enheduanna did this through writing, telling new stories that redefined the pantheon. She wrote many poems, prayers, and psalms to her goddess Inanna. In one of them, translated as Passionate Inanna, she claims, quote, to destroy, to create, to tear out, to establish are yours, Inanna. To turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man are yours, Inanna. And transgender women were heavily involved in Inanna's worship. This goes all the way back to ancient Sumeria sometime around the 3rd millennium BC. Temple records start mentioning priestesses of Inanna called the Gala. The Gala's primary occupation was singing religious hymns and lamentations to Inanna, and these hymns were explicitly gendered. Traditionally, they were exclusively sung by women. 
Some historians speculate that this is because lamentations and funereal wailings were traditionally coded female in this culture, and that these religious lamentations arose out of that tradition. This happens in ancient Greece and Rome, too. Like, women were kind of seen as the public mourners of the time. And I think there were some ancient cultures where women did this professionally. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. I mean, might as well monetize it if you've, if you've got the ability to do it. I mean, look, if you've got the lungs, you might as well use them. <laughs> The ancient Sumerians had a whole separate dialect of their language that was only used by women in their literature. That dialect was called emesal, translated as fine tongue or high-pitched voice, and I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right. Apologies to anyone who knows how to pronounce ancient Sumerian. And hymns to Inanna were only sung in this dialect. I don't know if it was a thing where women in real life used this dialect or if it was like a literary conceit that female characters in their mythology use this dialect. I think it's probably the latter, but I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, the point is that hymns to Inanna were only sung in this dialect, and the Gala were specialists in singing these very feminine-coded songs. But the Gala were not primarily cisgender women. The picture that emerges seems to be this. People who had formerly lived as men upon joining the cult of Inanna took female names, wore women's clothes, lived as women, and exclusively used the Sumerian dialect emesol, reserved for women only to sing their hymns. Statues and carvings of Gala have been found at archaeological sites in which the Gala look distinctly feminine and wear women's clothes. There may have been a ritual transformation from male to female involved in their induction into the religion. And, as the hymns say that Inanna has the power to change men to women— That does make sense, really. The gender identity of the Gala is a little fuzzy. While we might recognize most of them as transgender women today, some may have been intersex, while others may have been non-binary or not identified with any gender at all. Some were said to have cisgender female partners and to have had children with them, which of course doesn't require anyone to identify as male. A few may have been cisgender women. Some scholars suggest that castration would have been involved in their induction into the religion. They point to the fact that singing these lamentations may have required a high-pitched voice. But not all scholars agree on this, and there seems to be a lack of physical archaeological evidence. While singing lamentations appears to be the Gala's primary role, they also did other things. They healed sick people, made predictions, helped the poor, and performed religious rituals. They were respected leaders in their communities. There are some other gender non-conforming aspects of worship for Inanna as well. Another of Enhedwanda's poems describes a religious procession for Inanna, in which women dressed in men's clothes on their right side, and men dressed in women's clothes on their left side. So on the procession, everyone on the right side was a woman dressed in a man's clothing. No, that's not it. So women dressed as men on their right side, and women on their left side. And men dressed as women on their left side, and men on their right side. They had like half and half clothing. Half and okay, so that's what I'm that's what I'm getting confused with. Can you imagine how cool that would be to just like see a procession of people in half and half clothing, like completely subverting what would be their normal day-to-day attire? I love it. I know it's so cool, and they'd have to put up quite a bit of effort into these clothes, I would think, because you know, to sew two outfits together in a way that you can move in them both, you know? I think that's cool. And in a way that you can see them very much coded as what they are because, like, I'm just thinking, I don't know what the ancient Sumerians wore, but, like, a lot of the stuff that they wore in, like, Greece and Rome, it kind of took effort to make it both a male or a female outfit unless it was, like, a toga, you know? 
That sounds neat. And I, I don't know enough about what Sumerian clothes looked like, but if anybody happens to know what men and women wore in ancient Sumeria and feels like sending us an artist sketch of what one of these amazing outfits might look like, I'd be so into that. Please do. I mean, we will eventually get to ancient Sumeria. We're just not there yet, but we'll get there. We're kind of there now. I mean, sort of. Let's get back to the episode. Right. However, Inanna is usually described in her mythology as a cisgender woman. Her later incarnation, Ishtar, was more gender nonconforming herself. She was sometimes represented as a bearded woman or perhaps a non-binary person. And this may be because of her strong association with the planet Venus, which ancient Semitic religions saw as having two genders, female in the morning and male in the evening. I mean, what does that sound like to you? I don't know. You tell me. It sounds like, I mean, Venus is obviously the Roman name we give the planet that's associated with the goddess Venus, and Venus is uh, always linked with Mars or Aries, the god of war. I feel like this is just a coded way of saying that always Aphrodite has been a goddess of love and war, sex and death. How far back does the name Venus go? When did they name that planet Venus? I can't tell you. Oh, that, it wouldn't have been named Venus as we know it until the Romans. So it would have been the same planet. Did the Romans name it? Yeah, they did because it's named after their goddess. Interesting. That might be another clue. Maybe they were drawing on a more ancient Near Eastern tradition because sometimes they did that. Yeah. So Ishtar, like Venus, the planet, not the Roman version of Aphrodite, although as Jen notes, they might actually have been coded the same here, had both male and female aspects. In fact, her male embodiment was a god named Attar, worshipped throughout the Near East as a god of war. Some cults worshipped Attar, the male embodiment of a female goddess, as a woman, others as a man. So it's a little bit iffy whether we could even call Attar a cisgender man here. Some historians believe that this dual-gendered nature of Ishtar's was because of her dual nature as a deity of love and war. Ishtar is sometimes represented as a cisgender woman. Sometimes she appears as androgynous. Other times she is depicted as someone we might recognize today as intersex or perhaps as a trans woman. What's interesting about Ishtar's more gender nonconforming depictions is that she's rarely seen as a cisgender man, more a woman with some male sexual characteristics. For example, the beard, which, you know, some cisgender women have beards, but it's coded male. At least in a Western lens. Yeah, exactly. Even when depicted with male characteristics, however, the language used to refer to Ishtar in the text is consistently feminine in the ancient Semitic language. So to put it in English terms, Ishtar always has she-her pronouns. Ishtar had religious functionaries called Asinu, translated as, quote, womb men, who historians sometimes describe as feminine presenting cisgender men or as transgender women. The picture here is quite unclear, although one of their religious rites appears to be doing war dances with swords in Ishtar's temples, which we just have to say is completely badass. Very swoony. (laughs) Yeah. So again, I just need to say this to the people in the back of the room. It's clear that people existed outside the gender binary, even as far back as ancient Sumeria, Akkadia, Babylonia, and other places in the ancient Mediterranean thousands of years ago that some people born as men were seen as transforming into women, and I'm sure vice versa, when they came to the worship of Inanna and Ishtar, and that these goddesses themselves were not strictly cisgender. Their priestesses, the Gala, lived as women, but some may have married cisgender women themselves and had children with them. But what about Aphrodite herself? 
Despite Aphrodite's more well-known depiction as cisgender, the trans tradition absolutely did carry forward into worship of Aphrodite in the ancient Greek world. So let's look into it. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Like Ishtar, Aphrodite had what is usually described as a male version of herself named Aphroditos. Although actually, male may be a misgendering, and this is my theory. I haven't seen anyone really writing about this, but I think it's worth talking about. Like Ishtar's male component, Aphroditos is generally not depicted as a cisgender man. She's depicted as a woman, very feminine, presenting, wearing women's clothes, she has curves and breasts, and she also has a penis. I think that it's because she was depicted having a phallus that a lot of ancient and more modern writers tended to call her male because there were people outside of her cult who couldn't conceive of an individual with a phallus as not being male. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and give her female pronouns, which is not the norm, but I'm just going to do it. I believe that the aphrodite Aphrodite's pairing can be more accurately described not as a female-male pairing, but as a cisgender and transgender pairing, both women. Yeah. Aphrodite's probably dates from Cyprus, the ancient center of Aphrodite's worship in ancient Greece, all the way back to the 5th century BC. Lots of statues of Aphrodite's have been found, a beautiful woman lifting her skirts to reveal an erect penis. Some historians believe that the penis was supposed to be a symbol of good fortune and a powerful emblem of apotropaic magic. That is, magic that averted curses and brought good luck, which makes a lot of sense because you see that in the dong lockets in the ancient Romans, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the ancient Romans had dongs everywhere. But they had their particular, um, like they gave young boys their bullas and it was about sort of protecting them, wasn't it? A bulla was kind of like a locket, like, you know, kind of a charm that contained little things inside. And one of the little things that was inside was little, you know, miniature penises that were supposed to bring good luck. Yeah, so dung lockets. According to Macrobius, a Roman writer who lived in the 300s AD, Aphrodite was strongly associated with the moon. When worshippers sacrificed to her, the men and women switched clothing. And women and men were allowed to mingle with each other in Aphrodite's processions. Here's how he describes Aphrodite's and her worship. Quote, There's also a statue of Venus on Cyprus that's bearded, shaped and dressed like a woman, with scepter and male genitals, and they conceive her as both male and female. Aristophanes calls her Aphrodite's, and Levius says, Worshipping then the nurturing god Venus, whether she is male or female, just as the moon is a nurturing goddess. In his Athos Pylochorus, too, states that she is the moon and that men sacrifice to her in women's dress, women in men's dress, because she is held to be both male and female. Note the female pronouns, though. I'm not sure exactly how this is translated and how close this is to the original translation, because of course I'm not reading in ancient Greek, but it is kind of interesting here how it's indicating that the ancient Greeks did have room in their imagination for women who were transgender. Yeah, we're just going to keep saying it for everyone like in the, in the, back, of the back of the class. 
Philostratus, another Roman writer, writing about 100 to 150 or so years earlier, also describes the festival of Aphroditus and how her worshippers defied the gender binary. Quote, the torches give a faint light, enough for the revelers to see what is close in front of them, but not enough for us to see them. Peals of laughter rise and women rush along with men, wearing men's sandals and garments girt in a strange fashion. For the revel permits women to masquerade as men and men to put on women's garb and ape the walk of women. I mean... It's not the best way to state that. (laughs) No, that is really not the best way to say this. But I want to talk about something for a minute, Jenny. So this really makes me think back to the Roman Saturnalia. Oh, tell me more. What do you mean? Yeah. Okay. So during Saturnalia, right, it's all about how you have this upheaval of societal norms, right? You've got like the king of Saturnalia, who's always like a lowly enslaved person who gets to be in charge and enslaved people are are fed by their masters and everything is completely turned on its head for a few days. And if Aphrodite and Aphrodite are the same and Aphrodite came from Saturn's cut off bits, right? then you can kind of extrapolate that this is really about the reversal of gender roles and the subverting of what, like, you know, the severely patriarchal Romans and Greeks would have seen as sort of their normal societal whatever and allowing, you know, a freedom that they didn't normally have, which is really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's subverting gender roles as opposed to subverting economic or societal roles. But yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So we're not saying that these revelers that we're talking about could be considered trans here the way that we would recognize it in the modern world. The text doesn't say that people previously assigned a male gender were now living as women or vice versa, just that they switched clothes for this one night, which isn't the same thing. But I think it does show that there's a strong challenge to the gender binary in the worship of Aphrodite's. Some historians have described Aphrodite's as non-binary or intersex instead of transgender. That's also another interpretation that we could give her which may or may not be more accurate. I'm not a professional historian, so my theories on this are probably not as well-informed as some. But I do think it's a mistake to think of Aphrodite's as a cisgender man equivalent of Aphrodite. In statues of her, she's explicitly depicted as a woman. And I think that's so important to point out that, you know, obviously we could say, yeah, she could be intersex. That's totally valid. She could be non-binary, also totally valid. But it's so, so clear to me that there was room in the ancient Greek mind for women who had a phallus. I do believe that some ancient Greeks outside of the cult or perhaps 18th century gentleman scholars who translated those texts did see her as a man because they had a hard time seeing a person with a penis as anything but a man. And that's probably how that one prevalent description of her has come down to us today is my guess, is that these lines got blurred here because people looking at the cult from the outside interpreted it a certain way. I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. And also, I do think that, like, like everything we have with history, and particularly with mystery cults and cults in general, we just have scraps of some things that have been written down. And a lot of times what we have isn't written down by people who were a part of the religion because they were mystery cults, right? They didn't write their stuff down. So it's always being viewed by a lens of someone else. Exactly. And it's almost like Aphrodite has been, I don't know, what's the word, cis-washed. Like, in some places, I was really interested to notice some of the ancient Greek writers I was quoting referring to her as her. Yeah, absolutely.
One thing we see happening with Aphrodite is that the ancient Greeks took aspects of her that didn't fit their concept of a love goddess and put them one step removed. So those qualities were now embodied in someone Aphrodite was close to rather than in the goddess herself. And they did this with Aphrodite's ancient association with war. While Ishtar and Inanna were fierce war goddesses as well as love goddesses, Aphrodite's connection to war is mostly preserved in her relationship with Ares. And that completely doesn't surprise me because the ancient Greeks didn't need another warrior goddess. They didn't need another goddess who was out to help heroes. They needed a male war god, didn't they? So they sanded off this part of Aphrodite and made Ares. And the ancient Greeks did it with Aphrodite's gender nonconforming aspects as well. While Ishtar had male and female aspects, and while worshippers of Ishtar and Inanna were unabashedly gender nonconforming and possibly transgender, eventually the ancient Greeks took that part of Aphrodite and put it at one step removed by giving her an intersex child. And just to be very clear, this character we're about to talk to you about is intersex, not transgender. I do think that those categories get very blurred when we look at representations in the ancient world. Um, So the earliest mention of this child of Aphrodite that we're about to tell you about is a little fuzzy. They're mentioned briefly in an ancient Greek source, the philosopher Theophrastus, writing around the 200s BC. But their story didn't really appear in detail until Diodorus Siculus, who was a Roman writer, I think, writing between 60 and 30 BC, put it in his library of history. He's the source for Spartacus and the other Servile Wars. He was writing, you know, around the time of um, Mark Antony and Cleopatra and the end of the Roman Republic. The mythology goes like this. Aphrodite had a child with Hermes, and that child's name was a combination of their two names. Hermes plus Aphrodite equals hermaphroditos. And that's where we get that term, but the accepted term is now intersex. Please do not use that to refer to a person who is intersex. That is not a good thing to do. We're going to use the name hermaphroditos because we want you to know who we're talking about, but that's not an appropriate term for intersex people. Interestingly, I've also seen another non-mythological origin proposed, Aphroditos plus Hermi, meaning a Herm of Aphroditos. So Hermi, or Herms, uh, were square statues in ancient Greece with a head at the top and a dick somewhere in the middle, and they were just incredible. I just love Herms so much. (laughs) They're so weird because literally they are like a head down to the shoulders, right? Or even just the neck up ahead, you know? Yeah, even the neck up. And then the rest of it is just like a long, like rectangular base with a tiny phallus in the middle. It's it's amazing. It's utterly amazing. Do a Google search. You'll see what I mean. These statues were wild. Originally, they were usually signposts and boundary markers from what I can see in ancient Greece. And many of the statues of Aphroditos that have survived were Herms. And the statues of Aphroditos that are Herms are a lot more elaborate than many of the ones I've seen that are not of Aphroditos. This suggests that the story of the intersex child of Aphrodite may have been inspired by earlier Herms statues of Aphroditos, the transgender Aphrodite. And it's possible that people outside the cult were creating their own story to make sense of this representation of Aphrodite that they were seeing because they weren't members of the cult themselves. Like, mystery cults are mysterious. Yeah. So we're going to tell you about the mythology of Hermaphroditos. And it's real dark. I just want to let you know that right now before we get started. There's some uh, sexual assault in this story. So here we go. 
Hermaphroditus was not originally born intersex. They were born a cisgender boy and a stunningly beautiful one, with the most gorgeous features of his mother and his father. Yeah, and we're going to use he, him pronouns for Hermaphroditus at this point in his life and then switch to they uh, when they become intersex. He was raised by naiads at Mount Ida, but by the time he came of age at 15, he wanted to go traveling and have adventures. So Hermaphroditus wandered around in the woods and valleys and saw some sights. Eventually, after a ton of sightseeing and selfies, he grew tired and looked for a place to stop and rest, and he came upon a pool, clear and perfect, nestled in the woods, far from traffic, so shining and beautiful, it caught his breath. He was like, oh, this is just amazing, incredible. Look at this wonderful natural beauty. Look at this incredible swimming hole. I can't believe nobody else knows about this. Oh my gosh. It so happened, however, that this pool was the home of a nymph named Salmachus. Salmachus took one look at Hermaphroditus, this exceptionally beautiful youth, and fell instantly in love. Salmachus had absolutely no chill. She appeared to Hermaphroditus and first demanded to know if he was betrothed, and in the next breath insisted that he marry her at once. I just think she needs to slow her roll just a bit. This is coming on very intense. It's coming on very intense, very predatory. Hermaphroditos was just 15 and not a very mature 15. He had not been around a lot of girls except for the naiads who raised him who were probably more mother and sister figures. And he was kind of shy and caught off guard and just like, what the hell? What? Are you? Wh- who, me? He just did not know what to say here. Salmachus threw her arms around his neck and tried to get him to kiss her. Hermaphroditus was just extremely alarmed and tried to get her to stop, threatening to leave if she did not cut it out. Fine, Salmachus said, and disappeared into the undergrowth. Understandably, Hermaphroditus was really unsettled by this. But also, he really, really wanted that swim. It was so hot. It was like as hot as the day when I hiked up Delphi and almost had heat stroke. It was hot as, I don't know, the underside of Zeus's balls. Oh, now I have a freaking image of that and I want to cry. Oh, You're welcome. <laughs> anyway, moving away from those sweaty balls. The waters of this pool looked unbelievably good and refreshing. And so, as soon as Salmachus left, Hermaphroditus stripped off his clothes and dove into the crystalline waters. But Salmachus hadn't gone far. She was, in fact, hiding in the bushes, watching, creeping on him. Creepy as hell! Stop it! Yeah, this is a 15-year-old child. Stop! Very disturbing. We warned you guys. (laughs) We did warn you guys. So, as soon as she saw Hermaphroditus naked and swimming in her pool, she rose up and cried, I've won! He's mine! And then she stripped off her own clothes and dove in after him. And again, this is really awful stuff. Just saying it right now. What happened next was really not pretty. Sambalcus wound herself around Hermaphroditus, essentially forcing herself on him. And Hermaphroditus struggled to escape. And maybe just to keep from drowning, according to Ovid, Salmachus cried out for the gods to intervene and make sure that she was never parted from Hermaphroditus. Again, Hermaphroditus is not asking for this. He does not want this. It's non-consensual. And upon this entreaty, the gods heard her. And because the gods are just assholes, why would they do this? I don't know which gods. I'm not 100% sure. They heard her and melded the two together, blending their bodies together. And I'm pretty sure this isn't what Salmachus had in mind. 
much less what hermaphroditus would have wanted, so be careful what you ask for. From then on, hermaphroditus was intersex. According to Ovid, quote, Thus, when in the fast embrace their limbs were knit, they too were two no more, nor man nor woman, one body then that neither seemed, and both, which is a little bit convoluted. Hermaphroditos begged their father and mother, Hermes and Aphrodite, to curse the pool so that any man bathing in it would also turn intersex, which they did. Then Aphrodite elevated Hermaphroditos to a very favored status, making them one of the erotes, the winged gods in Aphrodite's retinue who embody different aspects of desire. They're often depicted as a small winged child alongside Aphrodite with both male and female sex characteristics. Yeah, they're the little cupids you see around her. One of them is Cupid, though, right? One of them is usually Cupid, yes. Or Eros in this place, because it would be, that's his Greek name. Cupid is Roman and Eros is Greek. I get these confused all the time. If you also get them confused, don't feel bad. So Hermaphroditos was also believed to be a deity of marriage, embodying both male and female characteristics. Perhaps people believed that they were best equipped to understand both sides of hetero relationships. A statue of Hermaphroditus was said to watch over a pool at the baths in Constantinople that was open to both men and women. In the Greco-Roman world, Hermaphroditus was also seen as a patron deity of feminine-presenting men and intersex people. Some scholars see in Hermaphroditus eastern roots, as Greek deities that come from the east, such as Dionysus, seem more likely to have a gender-bending nature. And that includes Aphrodite. So that is the story of transgender Aphrodite. From her deepest roots as Ishtar and Inanna, she has always been gender nonconforming. Transgender women led her worship, and in some of her oldest cult sites, she was quite possibly worshipped as a transgender woman. Aphrodite, in some cult centers and in some representations, was transgender. It doesn't have to change how you see Aphrodite. She is as she's always been, the goddess of love, of beauty, of lust, and sex, and sexual agency, our lady of the castration foam, the walking embodiment of orgasm herself. And she just so happens to be trans. So that's it for this week. Join us next time for whatever we're talking about next, which we don't exactly know just yet. As of this recording, which is quite a few weeks ahead of when we release everything. Look, it's it's like over a month ahead because that's how we have to work based on all the projects we have on right now and also our personal life commitments. So we just don't know what's coming next, but it will be exciting and it will be fun and it will be with you next week because we're weekly this season. Who'd have thunk it? We've been doing it for months and I still can't wrap my head around it. Oh my god. I can't either. I just can't. I mean, it's both wonderful that we're able to do this, but also really scary. (laughs) I have a panic attack every week. So in the meantime, you can catch up with us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter or at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And we haven't asked for this for a long time, but if you like what we do, please consider rating and subscribing and leaving a nice review for us. It really does help us get noticed. The more like five star and many star reviews that you give us, the more likely we are to be hopefully featured somewhere or found by other listeners. And consider joining our Patreon. We have extra episodes on our Patreon at all levels. Check it out. And we have some patrons to thank today, don't we, Jen? We do. 
blanket apology to anyone whose name we mispronounce. It will happen. We are two people who cannot say words, and we have a podcast. How did that happen? I don't know. Let's do our best, Annie. The first person we have to thank is Eve Dwyer. Sandy Salas. Phoebes Radford. Chelsea Cook. Kaona Murdoch. Francesca Sapsford. Melissa Kemp. Lorna. Just Lorna. Timothy Feezy. Taylor Rayfield. Anna Valencia. Yiva Reidenhag. Ellie. Just Ellie. Kitty Cat. Justin Kidd. Alex Duthie. Jessica. Just Jessica. Ashley West. Hannah Rogers. Michaela Erickson. Ezra Munn. Aaron Cox. William Patel. Versinganga Titterix. <laughs> I love that name. <laughs> Dim titties. <laughs> Jenny! Dim titties. <laughs> Is that Versinganga He finally shows up on the podcast and that's what he's got to say for himself. Essentially. So, Katie Schlosser. Irene Anderson. Jeremy Atkinson. Alana Okrent. Sorry to people whose names we butchered. (laughs) Thank you so much for your support. You're the reason we're still able to keep doing this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 